for the statisticians in the room, this will be our 12th week in John chapter 3. I think this is the last week, though I make no promises. can't tell you the number of times I've thought we're moving on to another chapter, which is an artificial uh, uh, imposition on the text anyway, would be my defense. Uh, but I've moved on to a new chapter only to get to the end of what I thought was the preparation work, and the Lord impresses upon my heart something that happened in the last chapter that I missed, and so there goes the whole ball game. But here we are again in John chapter 3, and I'm so thankful that we are. On the cover of Time magazine in 1966, and I think I've brought this before you uh, in, uh, some time ago, but on the cover of Time magazine in 1966, there is a bold question in red letters, black background, and it simply asks, Is God dead? That magazine hangs over my desk in my office next door. I bought it the second year that I was here, read the article that was asked in 1966, and um, it certainly had an impact on the way that I think ever since. Uh, John Ellison wrote the article, and it's really in response, it's a play on um, Nietzsche's, uh, a German philosopher's statement, instead of a question, his, Nietzsche's statement was, God is dead. He made an assertion. And Ellison goes on to ask the question, is God dead? The three words represent a summons to reflect on the meaning of existence. No longer is the question the taunting jest of skeptics for whom unbelief is the test of wisdom and for whom Nietzsche is the prophet who came and gave the right answer a century ago. Even within Christianity now, confidently, uh, now confidently renewing itself in a spirit as well as form, a small band of radical theologians has seriously argued that the churches must accept the fact that God is dead and get along without Him. How does the issue differ from the age-old assertion that God does not and never did exist? Nietzsche's, Nietzsche's thesis was that striving, self-centered man had killed God and that had settled that. The current death of God group believes that God is indeed absolutely dead, but proposes to carry on and write a theology without theos. That is, write a study of who God is without actually God being at the center, without God existing. Less radical Christians hold that, the very, that at very least, God in the image of man, God setting in heaven, is dead. And in the central task of religion today, they seek to imagine and define a God who can touch men's emotions and engage their minds. Uh, what Ellison goes on to argue in this article is that in light of the death of God and the reality that enlightened humanity has come to the position uh, to understand that God no longer, God has never existed, we're not going to get rid of the church wholesale. We're going to use it for what it's good for. We're going to continue on uh, preaching and teaching. But we all know at the bottom of our hearts that God is not with us. Al Mohler uh, responded decades later, the radical theologians pressed their case that orthodox theolo theology was based on an outdated understanding of God. God does not have to exist to be meaningful to human existence, they argued. He remains a potent symbol and a source of meaning. God is still a useful concept, they insisted. But in the words of Langdon Gilkey of the University of Chicago Divinity School, the believer still needs to learn that talk of God is largely symbolic. The argument, friends, is that, every, that it's fine to talk about God. It's fine 
to gather our families around the thought of God. It's fine to have ethics and wrap those ethics around the label of God because all of that has implications for our community. The thought of God will make our community better. But as I stated previously, Ellison goes on to argue that we will see, and it's, it's chilling. And quite frankly, when I, just two years out of college, read this article for the first time, my blood ran cold because his words, these words of a, a secularist, were so prophetic. He's writing in the 1960s, and, and he goes on to say that churches are going to continue to function, but what they will do is they will strip out all of the orthodoxy. They will still keep the form of the church. They will still gather week in and week out. They will still sing. They will still preach but they will be functional, and his term was they will be functional atheists. I went on later to learn uh, that Stephen Sharnock was the first person to coin that term, functional atheist, that we will, we will still gather, we will still sing, but we won't really believe that Jesus exists. You see, the only thing in our day, beloved, isn't that you call yourself a Christian, that won't get you into trouble, it's not that you have sentimentality about a God that you have inferred in your own thinking. That, that, that's fine to the modern mindset. What will get you into trouble is to believe the words of the Bible. To actually take them for face value. To actually believe that Jesus is the second member of the Trinity. That He is co-equal with God. That He is truly God and truly man. That He is the only way, the only truth, the only life. That no one is saved but by Him. That the, the thing that will get you into trouble is if you believe that God is actually real. That He's not dead. With that in mind, would you stand this morning as we read John's words to us in light of this pressing question of whether or not God is dead. Starting in verse 31, John writes, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He, who, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is God's word to you and I joyfully, joyfully today, beloved. Would you pray with me? Father, we come into your presence this morning so thankful for these words inspired by your Spirit so long ago that your church has feasted on throughout the centuries, that, Father, you have encouraged each believer to rest in. And so, Father, this morning I pray that we would see their truth afresh and anew, and I pray that that truth would be inscribed on all of our hearts for your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Ellie Bear, would you bring me that water that's on the front seat there? Thank you, darling. So we come to this question, is God dead? And we might be tempted to rush to some place, maybe in the Psalms like Psalm 19, where we remember the words of the psalmist, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. Day, pours out, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. What the psalmist is asserting there is that we can know that God is not dead because the earth is still in existence. Uh, there, there is this argument from general revelation that Scripture itself makes that we can know that there is a God by looking at the creation that He has made. Now friends, the reality is we can look at the world and we can see the excellency of God, but the world devoid of Christ would never ultimately save anyone. We can think 
about the plausibility that God exists in light of creation, but what we will be left with at looking at the cosmos and saying, yes, there is a God, is merely an inference that there is a God in existence, but we will not wind up with saving faith. Well, praise be to God, three chapters into John, we don't depend. Friends, do you know how how peculiarly blessed you are that you live on this side of the writing of John. The heavens do declare the glory of God, but John makes it plain. John spells it out clearly what this world was created for. Praise be to God that we are not merely to infer a general existence of God, But rather, we have learned through John's writing that there is a creator who created everything as a theater of cosmic redemption. Not only that, not only are we favored enough to be given the words that that Jesus came and that everything that was made was made uh, ultimately to bring glory to Christ and to be the theater of his redemption, uh, but our God sent John the Baptist as a witness to this fact. Now, if those, if those things were the only things that we had, that, that the general revelation of the world shows that there is a God, and that we have been told that that world was created ultimately uh, to display the redemptive purposes of Christ, and then, they, then, then there's this witness uh, named John the Baptist to, to point to Jesus, those three things would be enough for us to, to, to spend all of our lives living under the Word of God and seeking to bring glory to Christ. But friends, it's not only that he sent John the Baptist as a witness, he also sent John the Apostle to write down all things that had happened, all of these miracles. He inspired John to give us the account. And not only that, not only did he send John the Baptist to witness to Christ, not only did he send John the Apostle to, to witness to all of these things, but he also sent his only Son into the world that we might believe. And that's what we're given in John 3.16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God, of the monogenesis, of that one who knows God particularly. He sent that one into the world that we might believe. Friends, if we're going to answer the question that came in 1966, and I'm just of the opinion that that question didn't just raise up in a vacuum in 1966, but it's a question that depraved man has been asking throughout the centuries. Is God real? Is He in existence? And what is He doing with this earth? That's a, that is a question that, that we come to. Well, if we're going to answer that question, we're going to have to call some witnesses, or in this case, a witness, singularly. And if we're going to call a witness, there are some things that we have to know about witnessing and about the legal process. Now, I'm not going to give you a lawyer's dissertation on all of the bifurcation that probably happens in that endeavor, but... We need to know some simple facts about criteria of what makes a good witness. One, witnesses must have first-hand knowledge. They must have seen and witnessed what they are talking about. Uh, Even lost secular jurists would never allow into a courtroom a witness who has only hearsay. In fact, if you watch any of your favorite shows on TV and you wait for the opposing side to you know, to throw down their objections. Those are, those are my favorite parts. It's like spiking the ball legally. Objection. And generally, one of the qualifiers of that objection is, this is hearsay. This witness doesn't have first-hand knowledge of what he's seeking to testify about, and so he's not a favorable witness. So, so one, a good witness is a witness with first-hand testimony. Secondly, Uh, That witness must be willing to speak up. They must be willing to be involved in the process. They must be willing to be 
interrogated. And that brings us to the third point. The witness must be a reliable witness. Their story must not shift. They must be willing to be scrutinized in their testimony and have their testimony questioned from all different directions to see if it holds up to what they are testifying to. Well, that, in fact, is what John is giving us here in verses 31 through 36 is a witness that testifies to the glory of God and to the plan of redemption. In verses 30 and 31, we read, He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. What we find here is that Jesus is our first-hand witness to the glory of God. We are told here that Jesus has accurate knowledge of the Father. This is why Jesus is the teacher of all teachers. Other teachers come and they possess parts of the story. Other uh, prophets and and apostles throughout the the, the narrative of God's uh, redemptive story possess particular pieces. And, And we all have, I have, uh, favorite preachers, those who have, who have been used by God to teach us in a beneficial way. But every human, every earthly teacher only has a piece of the testimony, of the story. But Jesus knows everything. He came from heaven and so His knowledge, because He's eternal, because He is the second member of the t- Trinity and co-equal with God, is perfect knowledge. You see, if we come to somebody and we want to know about their family, the first thing that we do isn't to go ask someone four degrees removed about their family. We ask them about their family because they're a member of that family. They know, they have firsthand knowledge. Or, or if we're considering a, maybe a job change and we're going to move to another town, one of the things that's most often, uh, most often happens in that situation is we will get a hold of someone who knows that particular area and ask them about their firsthand understanding of what it is to live in that particular community. We want information from individuals who are reliable sources that have first-hand knowledge. John has an an interesting way of emphasizing the nature of Christ's knowledge. Uh, In in 1 John, uh, he speaks of, in, in that introductory statement, he speaks of the reality that there is this perfect union between the Father and the Son. And indeed, he says, our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. And what he's communicating there is that the Father has perfect knowledge of the Son and the Son has perfect knowledge of the Father. And so that is what we are also given throughout John's Gospel. He emphasizes over and over and over that Jesus is the one sent by the Father into the world to display the glory of the Father. In John's Gospel, we find 23 times some variation of the phrase, the Father has sent me from the lips of Christ. And the verb there, uh, the sent, is uh, apostelo. And it's mentioned 17 times in reference to the commissioning of Christ. Jesus is the one sent from the Father. He is the one who came down from heaven into the world. And now he is residing at the right hand of majesty. No matter how we pronounce it, the glory is that God sent his only son into the world and that should enamor us. That should cause us to tremble. That should cause us great joy with the reality that the, the father sent the son. I don't know about you, Sarah, but I don't believe on my account that the father was was ultimately responsible or that I am owed the sending of the Son. And yet, God in His beneficence, in His benevolence towards His creation, in His love towards His, His redeemed people, the elect, He sent His Son into the world to be a proclamation of His loving kindness. And there is a relational emphasis here that is very strong in all of Christ's statements throughout John. John really captures the relational nature of the Son to the Father. And in verse 16 of, excuse me, verse 28 of chapter 16, we hear these words from Christ, I came from the Father 
and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and am going to the Father. In, in verse 18 of chapter 1, we hear, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's right side. He has made Him known. Jesus has made the Father known. If we've seen Jesus, we see the glory of the Father. But of course, there is a distinction here. If we're talking about this Greek word that we render sent, that word ultimately is uh, translated apostle, which means sent one or messenger. And so that's why we have the apostles, those who were sent with a message. Uh, the prophets, the apostles were messengers, but again, they only had part of the message. They only had a piece. Jesus Himself is the message. He is the one who bears the imprint of divinity. He is the one who communicates the salvific work of God. Jesus and Jesus alone has knowledge of the Father, and it is He alone who reveals the Father to us. Now think about that. Think about this. Throughout the history of the people of God, God has been sending His prophets to them. And do they receive those prophets with love and open arms? We are so thankful to have the Word of God. And friends, if you really understand what's going on throughout the narrative of redemption, you cannot reject the doctrine of total depravity. Because here we have Adam and Eve who sin in the Garden of Eden, and there's a thousand different arguments about what that means. And it means what God said it means. That the day they eat of the, knowledge, uh, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would surely die. Thanatos, dead. They would be spiritually annihilated. Dead in their trespasses and sins. That's what it means. Well, I don't believe that. Well, that's fine. But, but Israel went on, quite frankly, living that out. Because God, now think about that. God created an entire universe. We've learned this from John as a, as, a, as a theater for the redemption that he was going to bring to his people. And yet Adam and Eve, given a command, rebelled, turned against God, fell into sin, and then Israel lived perfectly and happily ever after. No, that's not the story. The story is that God allowed Adam and Eve physically to live another day. And not only that, but he continually sends messengers to the people but they continually reject those messengers and go their own way. Why? Because they're dead in their trespasses and sins. Because they're living in their flesh and not according to a relational knowledge of God. It's part of why I think it's dangerous when we make these arguments about general revelation and we just leave them there thinking that if as long as we get someone to infer through deductive reasoning that God exists, then somehow we have done something fantastic. Now, we may use that method in our, in our road of evangelizing someone to just bring them to a, a, an awareness, but ultimately, uh, that leaves people still dead in their trespasses and sins because there's not a relational knowledge. There's not a, an actual uh, walking with the Lord and receiving of His Word. Friends, the picture of Israel spiritually blind and wandering in the desert is, is a reality for you and I in our own lives apart from Christ. And you say, well, I don't know that I see that clearly. That's the whole point. And what happens is John gives us clarification. Turn, in John, turn to John chapter 9. Two sermons for the price of one today. John illustrates this point perfectly in verses, well, in, in the narrative of John uh, chapter 9, and we're not going to go through the whole, whole chapter, but let's start in verse 1. As he passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God may be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is still day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva, and he anointed the eyes of the man with mud, and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, 
which, is, which means sent. And so he went and was washed and came back seeing. Jesus restores the sight of this blind man. Now for some, there's a theological arc here that means we should go spit in the mud and rub it in the eyes of blind people and claim that God has given us the gift of restoring blind uh, sight to the blind. This is not the point of this text. Not at all. In fact, you read the rest of the text, and, and what you, 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 you have to see is that this man's physical blindness is healed but what ends up happening, issuing forth, is more glorious than someone's sight being restored. And that is there, it, that he comes to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. His spiritual blindness is taken away. That this man begun, begins to understand who Jesus is. The, the, the man argues, he goes on to argue with the religious. Now think about this. The religious people in this particular community had a lot of sway. It wasn't 2023. These people had clout in the community. And, and here is this blind man who is uh, marginalized in this particular culture. And you get an emphasis of why. Because there was this thought that, well, it either was his parents that sinned or it was he himself that sinned. And so there was a program heaped on him. He was marginalized. And Jesus restores his sight. And Jesus has something bigger in his sight. And that is all of these religious leaders who are spiritually blind. And he uses this physically blind man to proclaim a testimony that Jesus could only do that if he was God. And boy, that doesn't make the religious crowd happy at all. In fact, look with me in verses 24 through 34. So for the second time, he called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. The, 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 the religious people are saying, Jesus is a sinner. And ultimately... Here this blind man's looking at them going, boys, I, one thing I know for sure, I couldn't see before he restored my sight, and now I can see. And he goes on. They, they said to him, Why did he, uh, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Boy, that made them, woo, ooh, I like this guy, just to be clear. Do you want to become his disciples? And of course, they were incensed, and so they, they proclaimed their knowledge of, of the law. And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why? This is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. And they answered him, You were born in utter sin. And would you teach us? And they cast him out. These spiritually blinded people wouldn't receive the firsthand account of Christ declaring the glory of God before him. And, and it's interesting to go throughout. Look, look with me real quick and see how there's this ascending reality in the life of, of this blind man. In verse 11 of chapter 9, we find him calling Jesus a man. The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes, he said. He calls Jesus a mere man. And then in verse 17, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And he says, oh, he's a prophet. And so there's this ascension. He, he was a man in verse 11, but now he's a, a prophet. And then in verse 33, he goes on to say, if this man were not 
from God, he could do nothing. Not only is he a man, a prophet, he's from God, but then in verse 38 we find these words, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. The, the point of his spiritual sight being restored was to show that Jesus was uh, the, the God of the heavens and ultimately that he restores the sight to the blind, but these blind religious people would not have their sight restored. They rejected the testimony of Jesus. Friends, I have a question. What do you see in Christ? Do you see a man? Is he just a religious figure? Do you see a prophet? Someone who came to teach? Do you see someone who has God with him? Or do you see God incarnate? Is this one whom you should bow before throughout all of eternity? What we can say with all certainty is that Jesus was a first-hand witness to the majesty of God. He was truly God. Not only was he a first-hand witness, he's also a willing witness. Verse 32 of chapter 3, he bears witness to what, has, what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. There's the problem. The problem in our day and age and in every day and age isn't that God hasn't made uh, himself clearly known. It's that no one will receive this testimony. And here we find something really radical, I think, in verse 32. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard. Not only was Jesus the one sent, not only is he the message, but he's also the one that willingly testifies. Now, now listen to that word. He willingly testifies. Dion's getting really excited because he's a word guy. And he's probably already caught on to this reality that, that, that here John doesn't say, and he bore witness. He's not using the past tense. He is here in inflecting the present active tense of the word that Jesus here in the present right now is actively witnessing to this lost, dying world. Jesus is testifying, beloved, not in the past, not when he was talking to the blind man, not when he was on the cross, not, not, not just merely at, at his ascension. Jesus communicates divine reality now, today. Jesus is testifying at this very moment. It's one of the reasons why I think it's absurd that we have this idea in our witnessing and our boldness for Christ that what we need to do, Sarah, what we need to do is get everybody to like you and I first. Man, I'm trying to get Sarah to like me and I've been married to her for almost 20 years. And what we're going to do is work people up to the point that then we can start to show Jesus. Can I tell you something? Jesus is far more powerful than you'll ever give him credit for. A lion doesn't need to be defended. He just needs to be let out of the cage. Tell people about Jesus because he's not a dead guy that witnessed at one time. He's alive and active and witnessing right now through his word. Reality is, that our Savior is an active, present witness with us if we will lean into His Word. He, he speaks today. Every word that is found in the Bible, in some sense, and I do think that there's a way that we over-arc and we, we read into the Old Testament some things that I, I, I just think that we've got to be careful, but in some sense... All of the Word of God is pointing to Christ. And that's what, what ultimately Jesus uh, is, is telling those that are walking with Him on the road to Emmaus. Did not our hearts burn within us? Why? Because the Scriptures bear witness of Him. And, and so it, people, I, I just want to know more of Jesus. And yet at the same time, in, in the modern context of religion, I want to know more of Jesus, but man, don't tell me to read my Bible. There's no other way to know Jesus but by reading His Word. Why do I want you to read your Bible? So that you can check off the Robert Murray McShane plan to the glory of God? If that's the way you do it, I'm happy. 
But, but ultimately, no, the reason that I want you all to cultivate, and, and you pray for your pastor in this, that I would have a, a larger appetite for the Word of God, isn't merely that we check off a spiritual uh, uh, thing on our list, but rather that we behold the glory of Christ in His Word. And His Word, in fact, promise us this, promises us then that we will be molded into His likeness. We can't become like someone without actually knowing them. And the witness that he has left us is the witness of his word in the power of the Spirit. He speaks today, beloved. And it's interesting, I think, if we're thinking of all of this in the context of legal proceedings, boy, there's been a lot of depositions flying around in the news media lately. And I've decided one thing about depositions uh, for sure, and that is that the the video, the, the video people for depositions in our day and age are the least talented people in videography. They have to get people at their worst angle with their hair messed up and, you know, looking like a hot mess running in from some meeting. But in all seriousness, the, 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 the reason for those depositions is so that you get somebody on the record so that when you go to the final court proceeding, you can hold them accountable to that testimony. Friends, can I tell you, that brings us to our last point about what ultimately John is telling us about the witness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus has gone on the record. He's been deposed. He has been. Uh, there is an account that bears witness to Him. And we can find that record reliable. Jesus is a reliable witness. We're not going to get to heaven and He's not going to change the, the, the rules. He's not going to change the testimony. This testimony is eternal and lasting. Look at verses 34 and 35. For He whom God sent has, uh, utters the words of God, for He gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into His hand. Now, there are different interpretations of this passage. And I'm not going to go through all of them, but, but, but part of the interpretation could be the way in which God gives His Spirit to the followers of Christ. But I don't think that that is actually the emphasis. I think the right view of this text is to tell us that God has not withheld any measure of His Spirit from the Son. You remember that John is the consummate poet. He, he loves to put things in, in poetic ways. And, and what he's doing here is this is his poetic way of expressing to us the reality that God has so poured out His Spirit on the Son that we can utterly rely upon Him. Uh, that th 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 Again, we come back to Trinitarian theology. That God is one. That the Father is God, the Son is God, the Spirit is God, and each person is distinct in their own personhood. And, and what that leads us to is that the words of Jesus, and I'm not talking about the letters in red. That's not my argument. If you want the words of Jesus, they come, before, uh, they come between Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and the end of Revelation. Just so we're clear. What, what, we, can, what we can infer from this emphatic statement that, that God has given the Spirit without measure is that His Son is in perfect union with both God the Father and God the Spirit. What is being said here is, look, this is not just a man trying to make the world a better place. That's a problem with liberal theology today, friends. Is liberal theology wants you to believe that Jesus came to just make our planet a little bit better? to start some good programs, to, to ultimately make our communities a little bit better. And if you're, uh, if you're awake this morning, you're catching on that the question, is God dead, comes on the heels of liberal theology. Because God in liberal theology can be dead. We, don't we, just need, we just need the cardboard cutout of Him anyway to gin people up to do our particular programs. We don't need God ruling and reigning. But here God is telling us through His Word and through His Apostle that Jesus didn't come to just merely make the world a better place. No, He is the one who is full of grace and truth. Jesus is the one full of 
revelation and salvation. Jesus is the one who is truly God and truly man, the only propitiation for your sin and my sin. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. What we're being taught here is that others taught aspects of the truth, parts of the truth, snippets of the truth. Friends, Jesus is the truth. Verse 6 of chapter 14, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's maddening to me when, when pastors get on national TV and they're asked softball questions like this. Brian, do you believe that Jesus is the only way to have a relationship with God the Father? Which is interesting because the framing of the questions often comes in Trinitarian language that you can't have apart from Christianity. So I'm just like, boy, you have that's like teeing up Arnold Palmer to just drive the ball straight down the middle of the fairway. And they say, well, for me, you know how many TVs I've lost with stupidity like that? Just, oh, no. It's not for you. For the entire world, the only way to the Father is through the Son. It is only by this witness that we ever have hope of knowing the Father and having a relationship with Him. It is only through Christ that we can ever have hope of redemption. To ever know that God is living and He's living to bring Himself glory and to sovereignly reign over all the affairs of our life. So what do you say, friend? Is God dead? In this generation, and in every generation, is He dead? Is this witness that has been left for you profound enough? Apparently for some it's not profound enough because there's a dichotomy here both in verse 33 and 36. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. In verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains upon him. There are people today who have seen this witness witnessed through the church. They've heard the gospel proclaimed, and yet they reject it because this isn't enough. Some people will say that, well, all of that's really convincing, Jay. It's convincing that, that God sent His only begotten Son into the world and that he, he lived perfectly and died perfectly and He imaged the Father to, to lost humanity. But man, I just can't, I cannot bring myself to believe. Boy, that may be the most honest thing that pagan people ever say. I can't bring myself to believe. Because nobody can bring themselves to believe. Only God can bring us to saving faith. Only God can give... Friends, I mean, think about the, 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 the holistic way with which our salvation is complete. God sends the prophets. We reject them. God sends the witness to Christ. God sends the apostle to record the witness of John the Baptist. John, uh, God sends the Son to bear witness but ultimately, none of that would be enough if God did not send His Spirit into the world to open the dead hearts of men, to make us alive unto Christ, that we would turn in repentance and faith. This week, Sarah and I were taking a walk. And, you know, we have open and honest conversations when we're just alone and we talk about a myriad of things. And I may frustrate some of you with this, but we were just talking about the insanity and absurdity of our day. And I won't get into this deeply because it's weird and there are kids in the room, but we live in a day and age when boys think that they can make themselves girls. And just talking about, do that again? Jay said, I wholeheartedly endorse that theological position. <laughs> Sarah, Sarah and I are just talking about the absurdity that people believe that. And it just struck me. I said, yeah. I mean, that is absurd that, that, that boys think they can be made girls and girls think they can be made boys, but I mean, you have to take that in the context of the religious movement of this country and uh, for the past 200 years where we've been telling people that they, that, that they, as blinded sinners, can make themselves saints. And I would argue that that is the greater abomination before the Lord. To, to think 
that we who are dead in our trespasses and sins, that we who spurned His name, that we who rejected His Son. Now, friends, I promise you, if you were there, you would have cried, crucify Him, crucify Him too. And you think that you can make yourself a saint in the sight of a holy God? I promise you it would take a miracle to do that. And that's in fact what has happened and so God has not only sent His witness into the world, but then He sent the, the, the witness of the Spirit into our hearts that we would receive the Lord Jesus Christ. There is this article that's written by C.S. Lewis, and I've probably mentioned it before, but it goes hand in hand with the question of, is God dead? And that is that we live in a world that's upside down, don't we? We live in a world where human beings put God in the dock. We put God in the witness stand. And, and Lewis writes this, The greatest barrier that I have met is the almost total absence from the minds of my audience any sense of sin. The early Christian preachers could assume in their hearers, whether Jews or pagans, a sense of guilt. Thus, the Christian message was in those days unmistakably that of evangelism, the good news. It promised healing to those who knew that they were sick. We have to convince our hearers of the unwelcome diagnosis before we can expect them to welcome the news of the remedy. He goes on, The ancient man approached God, or even the gods, as the accused person approaches the judge. For the modern man, the roles are quite reversed. He is the judge, but God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have the reasonable defense, a reasonable defense for being a God who permits war and poverty, disease, He is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal. But the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. And so what I want you to see is the change in our culture from the very early years of the gospel that we have put God in the dock and we've even had the audacity to ask the question, is God dead? It's an interesting question to place upon God. God, are you dead? I, I think it was, I, I can't remember. There was a rocker who when this magazine came out, is God dead? His response to it in a later magazine that I won't mention, his response was, I bet you that's a really offensive question to God. It, it, it is, friends. One preacher wrote, and I can't remember who it was, but he said, little do we know that when, that when we pin our sermons, we are drawing up our own indictments. I think that's true when we ask our questions too. We draw up our own indictments. We are indicting ourselves by even asking the question, is God dead? Because I believe this. In the final analysis, only spiritually dead people walking around in a universe that was created as a theater for divine redemption could ever ask such a twisted question. In 2009, the author of that article, uh, John Ellison, died. And I think he has his answer today. I think he knows whether God is dead or not. The real question, friends, today, and I close with this, is what will you say on the day, day of judgment? What is going to be your defense if you're here and you're not believing? What are you going to protest? Well, God, if you would have only sent a witness. God, if you would have only if you would only have written a message maybe that I could have studied out and thought through, then maybe I would have believed. God, God, if you would have only sent a group of people like the church to witness to your glory, then maybe I would have believed. Maybe if you would have sent someone, I would have received the witness of someone who had first-hand knowledge. I would have received the, the, the witness of someone who was willing to testify and whose testimony was reliable. I would have received a testimony of one who was full of grace and truth, full of salvation and revelation. If you would have sent that kind of person, then I would have believed. Well, beloved, He is witnessing to you at this very moment. The question isn't, has God spoken clearly about His existence and how we are to live 
uh, our lives. We heard in our Sunday school this morning uh, a, a, a lot of good information, a challenge on the will of God. Here it is. And so it's our joy to come week in and week out and be witness to. We sing the song, witness this gospel to me. Because without this witness, this would be our testimony. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. And that would be it. But the glory is that the Father sent the Son and that the Son sent the Spirit. And so now we believe. Isn't that a joy? Friends, the only thing that that magazine that hangs over my right shoulder does week in and week out asking the question, is God dead? It has never, some people might come into my office and go, well, that's a weird thing for a preacher to hang in his office. I hang it there to remind myself not that, not that God's dead, but that men who ask questions like that, they're the ones that are dead and they need the proclamation of this gospel. Let us give our lives to that reality. Would you pray with me? Father, we come before you today so thankful for the grace of your table. So thankful that you know our weakness in such a way that you know that not only do we need the gospel proclaimed verbally, but we need it in substance. We need to feel and to see uh, we need your gospel witness to us in so many ways. And so, Father, we know that your witness is perfect and true. We know that your word is, is complete, lacking nothing, sufficient. We know, Father, that the sending of your Son imaged your glory perfectly. And so if we want to see you, we look at the Son. And, Father, we come this morning thankful for the good news of the gospel that you sent your Son to live perfectly and to die and to atone for the sins of those who would call upon his name. Father, I pray that you would cause us who, who hold this gospel in our hearts that we would be bold with the proclamation of it, knowing that you still witness through the proclamation of your word and through the sharing of Christ. I pray, Father, that you would use us as apt witnesses to your glory. Father, I pray that if there's one here that has never turned in repentance and faith, that you would give them eyes to see, to receive this witness of Christ and that they would fall down and worship you and you alone. Father, I pray for our time next door that you would um, bless the food and the time as we share it for those who are ill this week and not able to gather with us. I pray, Father, that you would strengthen them, or Mrs. Huckabee especially, as she battles her illness. Father, we're so thankful that that sweet saint holds the testimony that though her outer body is wasting, inwardly she's being renewed day by day. And Father, we hang to that promise and we ask that you would bless her and Lewis. And Lord, we ask um, for the Perrin family, for Mr. Hill, that you would have your healing hand upon him, that you would strengthen him. Father, that you would protect him physically and, and you would sustain his precious wife, Donna. Uh, Lord, we come before you this morning thankful that you've given us the grace of this community of believers. Might we never take it for granted. Father, in our, in our community, we know there are those who are suffering loss. A man lost his life this week uh, just outside of town in a car accident. His family's grieving. And so, Father, we pray that you would use that situation, that you would witness your gospel in that uh, particular circumstance for your glory. In Christ's name we pray these things.